0: I'm Curtis Schaefer.
1: And I'm Martine Halverson Taylor, and this is Sacred and Profane.
0: In December of last year, we sat on a small mountain road in one of the strangest and most beautiful traffic jams I have ever been in.
1: 50 or so American bison ambled down a hill across the road, and into a gulch to reach a stretch of snow-covered grass.
0: We could hear the bison walking through the snow, pushing it aside with their massive heads to find grass, calling to each other.
1: These bison are just some of the thousands that roam Yellowstone National Park. They're all descendants of 23 buffalo, perhaps the only wild bison who escaped slaughter across the North American plains in the 1800s.
0: Yellowstone became their home almost by accident, when the land all around them was set aside as the country's first national park on March 1, 1872.
1: We came across evidence of bison almost everywhere we went in the park. If they weren't passing in front of us, you could see the snow they had churned up searching for grass along the valley, and more permanent remains as well.
2: If you come on in here, there's a few kind of scattered around.
1: This is Virginia Miller, a lead instructor at the Yellowstone Forever Institute and our guide in the park. She bent down to brush snow off a large bison femur. Huge vertebrae built to support the bison's large head, are scattered around. The, these,
2: I think, have been here about six years. Um, the head disappeared about four years ago. So, of course, in the national park, it's illegal to take anything natural or historical out, but it doesn't always work. I like to think that the people that take things just don't know any better, but when Yellowstone was established, there's wildlife all over the West. So it was kind of an unintentional sanctuary.
0: In fact, the act that dedicated the land as a national park, land that was deemed beautiful but not useful, has a lot more to say about people than it does about animals. An act to set apart a certain tract of land lying near the Yellowstone River as a public park. The tract of land in the territories of Montana and Wyoming is hereby reserved and withdrawn from settlement, occupancy or sale under the laws of the United States and dedicated and set aside as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people and all persons who shall be located or settle upon or occupy the same or any part thereof shall be considered trespassers, and removed therefrom."
1: Right from the start, the act created a split that we've been struggling with ever since. On the one hand, the people that were meant to benefit from the park were tourists, largely coming from the eastern United States. And the interlopers, on the other hand, The trespassers who are meant to be removed, these included the Native Americans who had been living within, around, and across the new park's borders for centuries. And animals were carefully managed, more to provide enjoyment for visitors than to preserve a landscape.
2: Park managers were more concerned with human recreation and what we were doing to manage wildlife was purely for the benefit of humans. People like to fish, and so early park management stocked rivers and lakes with non-native fish. And then to save the fish, they they would do things like kill otters or pelicans, animals that we like to see now. And so even though there's no fence around the park, as we developed more and more and more, whereas animals used to range far and wide away from this place, now it's much harder for them to go out of it. These animals that don't know where that boundary lies are essentially finding out because when they go there, they're, they're turned back. Mm-hmm. So it's become even more of, of an island of sanctuary whereas it used to be kind of just like everywhere else.
0: <laughs> Virginia talks about Yellowstone as a sanctuary and her use of this word, sanctuary, is why we went to Yellowstone. Sanctuary is a word imbued with explicit religious meaning. The original idea was a place that's made sacred by setting it apart, with boundaries drawn around it that seal it off from the mundane world.
1: And that's not new. Many of the early champions of the national park system saw it in explicitly religious terms, as the nation's Garden of Eden, for example. Take the famed naturalist John Muir, who wrote a guide to the first national parks. He loved the American landscape and wrote about it in language that is saturated with biblical allusions to the Psalms and to the book of Genesis.
3: Wander here a whole summer if you can. Thousands of God's wild blessings will search you and soak you as if you were a sponge. And the big days will go by uncounted The time will not be taken from the sum of your life. Instead of shortening, it will indefinitely lengthen it and make you truly immortal. Nevermore will time seem short or long, and cares will never again fall heavily on you, but gently and kindly as gifts from heaven.
0: We wanted to explore what happens when a religious concept, like making a sanctuary, becomes a secular, a bureaucratic project? What happens when a government draws a border around a piece of land, a border that sometimes cuts straight across natural boundaries? And how does that border change the land inside and outside of the border?
1: How does this invisible but powerful boundary affect people, animals, and the environment itself? We'll be talking to people like Virginia who live and work in and around the park, about what that line means.
0: Speaking of buffalo, they are a perfect example of what happens when you create a boundary between the park and everything else. Inside the park, they became a protected species.
4: When you look at the history books and things, it's like they first sent out the U.S. cavalry to stand guard around those so that poachers wouldn't have eliminated them.
1: This is Mike Meese. He's one of the founders of the Buffalo Field Campaign, a group that tries to advocate for the Yellowstone region's bison population, a herd that now numbers over 3,500. It's a shadow of the historic population of bison in the American West. Accounts from the 19th century describe herds of buffalo stretching for miles and numbering in the tens of thousands. The total bison population in 1800 could have been as high as 60 million.
4: The sacred herd that we have here in Yellowstone, the last of the direct descendants, of what they guess to be the 30 to 60 million that roam North America. And that's what makes these animals so sacred and and special.
0: If left to their own devices, buffalo will roam to find ideal habitat throughout the seasons. They migrate in larger groups for hundreds of miles along river valleys, looking for fresh water and grass.
4: This year isn't a good example, because we really haven't had much snowfall yet, but when you see the buffalo travel through the thick winter terrain, they always walk in single file, and when the first buffalo gets tired, he or she steps to the side and lets the whole procession go by, and then they jump on at the end, where all the work has already been done, and it's easy. And then, of course, not only did the buffalo benefit of that, you'll see the elk follow those same trails, you'll see the deer, and so they, they helped the entire ecosystem survive. For much of their
0: history as a species, that tendency to roam wasn't a problem. But in the 21st century, those migrations bring conflict. Mike says bison like to live in the same kind of places that humans and cattle do. In Montana, that means river valleys, where there are now ranches, farms, and towns.
1: Some ranchers view them as competition, taking grazing land from their cattle. Bison and Yellowstone also carry a common bacteria that's been linked to stillbirth in domestic cattle, although transmission between bison and cattle hasn't been documented near Yellowstone. Bison can also live for around 15 years in the wild, and the herd can grow quickly. The park can't support an infinite number of them.
0: So, a compromise was worked out between federal, state, and tribal agencies. The bison have to stay inside the park. If they leave, they can be hunted in season. And the park service culls the herd most years, that is to say, kills some of the herd to rein in their numbers. Mike says that in 2017, between legal hunting and culling of bison inside the park, roughly 1,200 of Yellowstone's bison
4: were killed. So we're talking about approximately a quarter of the entire Yellowstone herd died last year. And this is almost an annual practice. Yellowstone is a high elevation plateau. It's not ideal habitat year-round habitat, and these animals have to be able to migrate because you can't make arbitrary lines and expect wildlife to follow your lead. And like I always say, no matter what your management plan does, you're never going to stop these buffalo from being buffalo. We set things up for disaster because we base things on what humans want and not what the wildlife needs. And until we can learn to listen to the wildlife, they tell us all the time what they need, they show us what they need. But we just don't want them to need that all too often.
0: The park has come to be a place that contains some of our last wild bison, providing them a safe, but limited sanctuary, and they cross the border at their peril. Those borders also keep out human development and human inhabitants.
1: Yellowstone wasn't an untouched wilderness when it became a park. People were living within its new boundaries and had been for centuries. At the time the park was created, that included members of the Crow tribe. They had been promised land including what's now Yellowstone, when they signed a treaty with the US government just four years before.
3: I like to think of Montana as kind of the mecca for Plains Indians has been for a very long time.
0: This is Dr. Shane Doyle.
3: I'm a local boy, I guess you could say, uh, a member of the Crow tribe and uh, my tribe, has been around here for a very long time. Um, We don't know exactly when uh, or how long we've been in this region, but our oral traditions place us back about 500 years ago.
0: In the centuries that the Crow people lived in the region, they moved around, following food sources as the seasons progressed. And like many of the Plains tribes who lived in and around Yellowstone, by moving, they maintained strong connections to a much larger world.
3: They traded just as much as they hunted and gathered. You know, they developed the, only, the world's only universal language, uh, plain sign language. You know, 44 different tribes spoke the same language. And you know, it wasn't because of hearing impairment. You know, it was because of the trade networks that were so crucial to their, their way of life. From Edmonton, Alberta, all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Even to this day, people don't speak the same language in that region.
0: Treaties and the borders they imposed fractured that large, interconnected world of hunting, gathering, and trading that Shane described. And within four years of signing a treaty at Fort Laramie, the land that had been promised to the Crow became a part of Yellowstone Park.
1: Stories that justified and promoted the park as an untouched paradise proliferated. These stories claimed that few Native Americans had ever been there because its geysers and thermal features were seen as threatening or even cursed. The implication was that not only did Native Americans have no real claim to the park, but they were incapable of appreciating its beauty in the same way that civilized white Americans could.
3: So a lot of people been here for a long time. They weren't afraid of this place, which is what people are are led to believe, I think, that Native Americans were kind of afraid of Yellowstone Park or they avoided it or you know, which is not true at all. They were here a lot all the time. And I think they enjoyed coming here. They they liked it. It's like why would anyone not want to? You know, get that extraordinary feeling of uh, humility and humbleness that comes with something that's so much bigger and older and more significant than you.
0: <laughs> Shane has conflicting emotions about modern Yellowstone. On the one hand, it can be a stark reminder of what has been lost.
3: My great-great-grandfather signed a treaty. that said it was supposed to be You know, the law of the land. This should be my property right here that I'm standing on. (laughs) So yeah, let's start with that. And uh, you know, we'll take back all the Yellowstone, basically the whole Yellowstone River.
0: But the idea of Yellowstone as a sanctuary, as a place that's set aside from everyday use, there is something in that idea that he believes would ring true to the people who lived here before.
3: They had no, in their wildest imagination, knowledge of the billions and billions and billions of people that we share this planet with, and that we have to set something aside, otherwise people will get at it. And I think if they had understood from that context what a sanctuary was, they would have advocated for that.
1: As we were packing up our equipment, Shane mentioned one last thing. He says Yellowstone is part of a much larger fight in Montana about who has access to and rights over public land. A huge swath of the state, about a third of the total area, is managed by the federal government. There's constant debate By ranchers, hunters, environmental groups, and tribal governments about how those lands should be used. Who gets to determine how this is a sanctuary and for whom?
3: We've been really going round and round over public lands here in Montana. But people, by and large, do support public lands. And, you know, that's about as sacred as it gets in America. I mean, you know, you could say they're not really sacred, but I, you know, I don't know about that. Because that, that means that we, we said we value that more than money.
0: Yellowstone, like all sanctuaries, is defined by its boundaries. And while humans may mark these boundaries, they can't protect the place from larger forces. Forces like climate change.
5: It's hard to be objective about a place like Yellowstone because I sort of feel like a brother
0: to it. This is Mike Tercik. He's an ecologist who studies how climate change is affecting the park now and what its future might be. When you
5: think something like this is threatened, it's hard to be a scientist and just present just the facts. You want the next 20 or 30 years to turn out in a very specific way if you care about a place like this as much as I do. It's not just an experiment in science.
6: I came out to Yellowstone in 1995, fell deeply in love with the landscape, started guiding. And um, so it's been, this is my 20th year guiding.
1: And this is Ashia Mills. Like Mike, she felt drawn to Yellowstone on a personal level. Both of them have worked in and around the park
6: for decades, which is how they first met. Um, We were both working at Old Faithful back in the time. And so it took us a few years to get together. But um, now we have a house and a kid just around the corner and live full-time in Gardner.
1: In the time they've lived and worked in the Yellowstone ecosystem, the symptoms of climate change have become more and more visible. Winter is growing shorter, with fewer days below freezing and fewer with snow on the ground. In the summer, wildfires are larger and more frequent. And while as a scientist... Mike cautions that it's dangerous to rely on anecdotes over data. There's a moment he just can't get out of his head. In
5: 1995, I had a job where I was the last person in the park with a tow truck driver until the very end of the season. I think one day I sold three gallons of gas the whole day. You know, when you got past mid-October into late October, the road would close every other day, sometimes for several days at a time. And if someone did make it, it was like a big achievement. Often I'd have to go with the tow truck and drag them out of the ditch. But then this fall, you know, I think it was October 26th, that we were down in Old Faithful. So it was the same time of year, 23 years later. It was 70 degrees.
0: This is a tension that lies at the heart of sanctuaries like Yellowstone. And it's made worse by rapid climate change. We seek to preserve an untouched version of the land. But landscapes are dynamic. They change constantly, especially when humans are involved.
6: I think originally the idea of Yellowstone was to sort of have this vignette, but it had already been so altered. You know, my early years guiding, I used to talk about how, you know, as much as possible, we're trying not to put anything in or take anything out. But then the more you're here and the more you learn about our, you know, our um, things like spraying the Northern Range with DDT and, you know, some really heavy handed management that's gone on certainly before and then even since the park was established. So when we talk about trying to, save Yellowstone in quotes, or, you know, what is it that we are trying to save? That is a part of the conversation. Is it a vignette from 1872? Is it post DDT spraying? Is it the 1942 version? Is it what it looked like 10 years ago or when I first got here and thought it was perfect?
0: There's another question raised by climate change. Right now, the threats coming to Yellowstone are environmental. As the country heats up, a relatively cool place like the mountains of Montana or Wyoming becomes an even more attractive place to live.
6: The second greatest threat to the ecosystem is development. One of the reasons why Yellowstone got set aside in the early end was because it was sort of this useless piece of land. You know, We couldn't ranch it. They didn't know about any big mother loads of gold or or some other precious metal and So, you know, they they took a good look and said, well, can we ranch it? Can we farm it? You know, now it's under snow half the year. It's inaccessible practically. So sure, we'll make it a national park.
1: And while Yellowstone may not have gold, it's full of resources that are going to become increasingly important as our climate warms, especially water.
6: Looking down the road for Yellowstone is things like water availability. When downstream, we have people literally dying for lack of water. Hydrological dams have been proposed in Yellowstone in the past, they've gotten defeated, but I think that that's something that's going to revisit us in the near future. And who's going to care about the Grand Canyon of the Yellowstone when people are dying downstream?
5: You've you heard of sliding baselines, I'm sure you're familiar with that phrase, where you you accept what you have and that's the normal or the okay and, and every generation does that so you keep having a, a loss. In some ways, that's a mercy. I I think about that for my daughter. She'll never remember the Yellowstone that I do, and so she won't feel the loss of it. So it's good and bad. It's less emotionally hard, but you also, if you take it to an extreme, you end up giving up everything that matters because you keep compromising.
6: The challenge is caring so deeply, you know, having this this landscape be such a meaningful part of our lives. Um, and, and the choice to have a daughter too, you know, Mike mentioned, and these are the kind of things that motivate Mike and I to do a lot of the work that we do. And deciding to have a kid and, and knowing, knowing what we know, but her name, Aria Hope, you know, a song of hope, having, because if you don't, you just won't get out of bed in the morning, you know, why bother?
0: At the end of the day, humans create sanctuaries. We make the rules.
1: Each of our guests today is deeply invested in the park. For some, it is part of their professional lives, but it is, moreover, a part of their emotional lives, and they have made it a sanctuary in their own unique and distinct ways.
0: And each is conflicted about the very nature of the border that sets the park apart from the rest of what is called the greater Yellowstone ecosystem. This is a border that has kept native peoples out, redefining right under them what land they can and cannot have free access to. This is a border that is completely arbitrary to the buffalo, who in their very nature want to roam freely over it, across it, and back again.
1: And this is a border that ultimately feels too porous to Mike and Ashia. It cannot keep out climate change. The government and the early naturalist movement created it to be a sanctuary, setting it apart as a special place, redescribing it in the language of the sacred. To make a place a sanctuary in this way imbues it with great power. But again and again, we were struck by the arbitrariness of it. The park grips us with its incredible natural beauty, its deep histories, its power to protect what we might otherwise lose, But the deep irony is that climate change doesn't care, and it turns out that what we do as humans elsewhere changes the borders, redraws the picture, alters the sanctuary. What Yellowstone is in the future as a national sanctuary may not be what Yellowstone is now, as our guide Virginia reminded us as we left the park for the last time.
2: When we had Yellowstone become a national park in 1872, we didn't really know what we were doing. I say we like I was there. But, <laughs> but you know, throughout time, the park has come up with different ways to manage wildlife, people, recreation. And it, Yellowstone didn't come with an owner's manual. We're still making it up as we go. So all these controversies, you know, we can't just look at something and go, oh, this is how we're supposed to do it. We have to figure it out. We don't know what right and wrong is yet.
0: (laughs) Sacred and Profane was produced for the Religion, Race, and Democracy Lab and the Sanctuary Lab at the University of Virginia. Our senior producer is Emily Gaddick. Our program manager is Ashley Duffalo.
1: Special thanks to Matthew Bertner, Cassandra Fraser, Willis Jenkins, Luke Kreider, Erica Scher, Ashley Tate, Devin Zuckerman, and Yellowstone Forever. Our readers were Cameron McKay and Chris Waljasper.
0: Music for this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. You can find out more about our work at religionlab.virginia.edu or by following us on Twitter at The Religion Lab. And if you like the show, head over to iTunes or the platform of your choice to rate and review us. It really makes a difference for new shows like ours.
1: Speaking of the show, this is our last episode for a while at least. Over the next few months, we'll be getting Season 2 ready for you. But in the meantime, we'll be highlighting some of the great work our students are doing around the world on our website, religionlab.virginia.edu. No bison were harmed or approached in the making of this show. The sound at the top of the show came from powerful microphones that could pick up these sounds while we were sitting safely in our cars. Do not try and record bison or any wild animal up close and personal.